Hi folks. From time to time, Sarah and I have groups of people around in the house and we provide food. Things like barbecues, Christmas parties, things like that. And I'm sure you've been in exactly the same situation. When this happens, one of my main focuses is in getting the house tidy, but Sarah is the main feeder in the family and she's also a gifted cook. So she takes care of the, the food and the menu and uh, one of her main fears is that the food isn't going to be good enough. But the second, maybe even worse, is that we run out. Now the quality is never a problem, but the second part of this fear usually means that we're eating leftovers for about two or three days afterwards, and that's not a complaint. I wonder if you've ever been to a party or somewhere where the host ran out of food or drink. I don't think I have, but it's got to be incredibly embarrassing. We did once run out of toilet paper when my brother and his family were visiting, but that's a different story. It was fixed quite quickly, uh, but still, that was really embarrassing. In our passage today, uh, we're looking at a wedding which runs out of wine, and this was just the worst. Keeping in mind that water 2,000 years ago wasn't always very clean, and wine is probably one of the safest uh, things to drink at that point, with its lower alcohol content, maybe around about 4%, to run out was just social suicide. It would have been a reputation that you just couldn't shake. In today's society, this is very unlikely to happen at a wedding. Um, everything is planned to the nth degree. It's all a lot of micromanaging. We know who's coming to the wedding, how much they're going to eat. We know what their allergies are. We know where they're going to sit. It's all very, very planned. So it's very unlikely. But in today's passage, things have gone wrong. Some of these weddings were maybe a week long and therefore a little bit harder to predict. Maybe people would stay a little bit later. Some family members uh, come along at the last minute, but unexpected. Uh, and uh, maybe there's a few big drinkers. But whatever it was, this wedding gets into trouble. And this is the height of embarrassment. In some of these areas where many of the people were poor and life really was just work, sleep, offer sacrifices, and then go on with the rest of your life, um, a wedding in the village was talk of the town. It was the highlight and a place for people to gather together and to celebrate. It was big news and nothing could go wrong. Well, today it does. So let's read the passage together. We're looking at John chapter 2 and reading verses 1 to 11. And it reads, On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They've got no more wine. Mother, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to his servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realise where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after, after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here at Cana and Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Might be helpful just to have a quick chronological reminder of what's happening just at the start of Jesus' life. So we're thinking about Jesus' public 
life. So he's around about 30 years old now, and then this is the point where he's starting to act out a bit more publicly. So we've looked at John the Baptist uh, meeting uh, Jesus and declaring him to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And John baptises Jesus. From here, even though it's not in John, it is in the other Gospels, Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days where he's there alone and he's tempted and tested by the devil and overcomes him. Then Jesus comes back and starts calling disciples, those who would follow him and be part of his ministry. And in today's passage, he's probably by this point called maybe five of the 12 disciples. And then Jesus starts his public earthly ministry. And this passage today shows the start of his miracles. So we know what happened from our reading. But as with all leadership seminars that would tell us, the most important starting place today is the why. Why did Jesus start performing miracles or signs? And why is this one recorded? You will see the word sign used in this passage, and it's, it's not too different from the idea of a miracle. But sometimes the idea of a sign means, gives you the thought that it's pointing towards something, a truth or a lesson that we should be learning at the same time. So, what are we to know about the purpose of these signs? Well, to answer this question, we start at the end. We look at the final verse of our passage today. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now, this is what we call Jesus' first sign or miracle. And the reason for this one, and actually all further ones, is to reveal his glory and so that people will believe. Jesus was about to embark on history's most revolutionary time of ministry, teaching, challenge and calling for anyone who'd hear. He was about to turn the world upside down and cause all kinds of people to marvel and ask, who is this man? God and Jesus knew that for a stubborn man to believe, there was going to need to be some miracles for people to see. These miracles would reveal who Jesus was as the Son of God and cause people to confess who he was and believe in him. That's their purpose. In each of them, people would be remarkably blessed. The lame would walk, the blind would see, today the thirsty will drink, etc. But most of this was almost like a byproduct because the first and primary need of every man is a spiritual one. To understand that we are broken sinners in the sight of God, unable to impress him with our good deeds or our try-hard attitude, you, me, every person on this planet needs to understand that we are just sinful people in need of a saviour, in need of forgiveness, and that this man, Jesus Christ, offers everything we need. Our spiritual need outweighs our material need by infinity. In Mark chapter 8 and verse 36, one of the other Gospels, it says, What should it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? I hope you see, you can have every material need met, but if you never met Jesus, it'd be wasted. And so people then and today need to see who this man is and understand how remarkable he is. And these signs will help to do this. In Hebrews chapter 2 and verses 3 and 4, it says, How shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, 
wonders and various miracles. I hope you see that there is salvation on offer today for anyone who will accept that Jesus has offered forgiveness through taking our punishment on the cross. And when we ask for forgiveness, admit our failings and make Jesus Lord of our life, we find salvation. That's what God offers us, salvation. And we know about this man today because people have passed on this message for 2,000 years, were willing to die for what they had seen and what they knew to be true. And these signs and miracles that we'll see today and over the next few weeks are all about declaring him as the son of God who takes away the sin of the world. So why did he turn water into wine? Yes, it was to help out a wedding in need. But more than that, he is starting to show exactly who he is. So today, do not miss him. But as we look at this passage, there are plenty of other lessons to learn. Firstly, if you're in a situation or you're looking forward to hoping to be married one day, then Jesus wants to be part of your wedding and deserves an invitation. Now, not everybody does want this or is called to be married, and that's fine. But there are plenty of people listening today who will hope in the the future one day to be married and Jesus wants to be involved. Ryan, Indy, I'm looking at you as if you guys would have it any other way. And this wedding and all weddings are better for having Jesus at them. I believe fully that marriage is from God and we do well to make our vows in the presence of God. And therefore, if you're married, then if you haven't already really truly invited Jesus into your marriage, then do this. Take time as a couple reading and discussing Jesus and his word. Pray together. Develop good habits that ensure that Jesus is at the centre of your marriage. Make time for it. It's not easy with all of the distractions of life and home, but it's so important to do so. Read what the Bible has to say about what godly marriage looks like and work towards that. And if you'd like some advice, passages to read, some good books to refer to about what a good godly marriage looks like, then please do contact us at Regent Chapel. Like this unknown couple here in our passage, have Jesus as the key component of your wedding or your marriage. In these accounts, this week and in future weeks, we're going to start to see more of the divinity of Jesus shining through, showing himself to be the son of God. But as we see that, we need to make sure that we see Jesus' humanity too. Jesus and his disciples were invited to this wedding with, as far as we're aware, no strings attached. It just says that there was a wedding, a wedding. his mother Mary was there, and he and some disciples had been invited to. Maybe it was relatives, maybe it was everyone in the village. But I think Jesus would have been the kind of person you want at your wedding anyway. I bet he had great jokes. After all, he did invent humour. I have no doubt that he was a great conversationalist. He would have been down speaking to the bride and the groom, passing on his congratulations, encouraged them about what was to lie ahead for them both. They would have felt uplifted by his conversations, warmed by his character. Jesus was more than just a great man. He was the perfect man and would undoubtedly have been an integrated member of this wedding taking part and having fun. At times, I stupidly and and with no reason at all picture Jesus as maybe sitting at the side, surrounded by his disciples, not really taking part at all, just looking on, almost looking a bit shifty. Why would that be our Jesus? Jesus was no killjoy. And neither should we be either. 
We shouldn't be silly or frivolous. We are always ambassadors of heaven. But some Christians are so holy that they never have a smile on their face and a dark cloud just hangs over their head permanently. That shouldn't be us. As Spurgeon wrote, there will be more souls led to heaven by a man who wears heaven on his face than hell. So in these stories, as we marvel at Jesus' divinity and power, let us remember that this man was fully man, knowing what it was to celebrate and be joyful and be with a couple on their wedding day. And in that, he is, as always, our supreme example. But as we know, things have taken an embarrassing turn for the worse. The wine has run out. Oh no. And we don't know why Mary is the one that seems to have the responsibility here. Maybe she was in charge of catering. We just don't know. Maybe it wasn't really her place at all. And she just knew that Jesus was the kind of person that was going to be able to help. Now, interestingly, Mary has never seen Jesus do a miracle. She doesn't actually ask him to do one here either. But she's clearly hopeful that he will intervene. You see that in her response to the servants. Now, this may just be because over the years, Jesus has shown himself to be a very resourceful person. Most people believe that at this point, Jesus would have been head of the house, that his earthly father, Joseph, may well have died. And maybe he's just shown that he has wisdom and the ability to solve problems in a way that nobody else has managed. But I do wonder, at his birth, at the nativity scene, as those shepherds explained all that the angels had declared to them on the hilltops, and the other amazing things that Mary was part of, we read in Luke chapter 2, verse 18 and 19, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. When we read in Luke chapter 2 about that one glimpse into the the childhood of Jesus as a 12-year-old boy sitting at the temple, baffling the scholars with his questions and answers, we again read, Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them, but his mother treasured all these things in her heart. She was told that he was going to be an amazing child, and she saw it play out, but didn't understand So she stored these things in her heart and watched him as he grew up, a bit different to all of the other kids. After 30 years observing Jesus, maybe she was just waiting to see what he was capable of. Regardless, her words to the servant speak volumes. Do whatever he tells you. And many have commented on the response of Jesus to his mother. Women, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. To us today, This sounds like quite a harsh rebuke. Kids, I am not suggesting for a second that you should start referring to your mums as women. I would see a grounding in your future, which currently might not seem like a particularly big deal. But still, many scholars have commented that this word in the Greek is not rude or disrespectful at all. And is in fact the same word that that Jesus uses when he speaks to his mother from the cross. It's not quite a normal motherly response. And in fact, some people have suggested that the closest term that we might have is that American term, ma'am, which might be the closest available. But his question literally translate what, translates what to me and to you. And is translated in the NIV version as why do you involve me? Most scholars seem to view this uh, in the same way. In this response, Jesus is making clear to his mother that his mission at this point is now worlds away from her life. He was embarking on a public walk of ministry and teaching 
that would lead him far away from her, to many disciples, to many people hating him, and ultimately to Calvary's cross. And whilst many other sons would continue to look after the mothers, this was not going to be Jesus' life from this point on. He loved her, he cared for her, from the cross itself, he would ensure that she, would, she was going to be looked after. But his life was taking a very different route. And Mary needed to know this. And this was going to be hard to take. She bore him. She nursed him. She ta taught him to walk and to read. And all of that just blows my mind. But from this point, his mission would take him far away. And this was a declaration that what was, going to be a, more, what was going to be a concern to her was not going to be his. He had a world to save. She didn't need him as a son anymore. She now needed him as a saviour, just like the rest of us. And I think it is worth saying at this point that there are many in the world that believe that Mary, as the mother of Jesus, has a specially exalted place as intercessor to Jesus on our behalf and even has the ability to command Jesus what to do as his mother. And I think that this passage makes quite clear that Jesus does not answer to Mary. She requests his help and is fully relying on his grace, just like everyone else. But what I do love about Mary is that her faith vastly outweighs her understanding. She doesn't know what Jesus is doing. She might not even understand what he's talking about, but she trusts him fully. Do whatever he tells you was the instruction to the servants. Now that's sound advice for all aspects of our lives. Do whatever he tells you. It'll get you out of many a problem and it'll set you on the right path. And this is the kind of trust that we need to have too. Whatever the trial, the pain, the hurt, our faith needs to be grounded in the knowledge that our God knows what is best for us and can bring us through it. Our God who is loving and true will be there throughout all of our trials and walk, through, walk with us through whatever the situation. When our faith is determined by what happened, what's happening around us, it's likely to come crashing down when things get hard. But our faith can be firm and true when it's grounded in who God is and his faithfulness. Like Mary here, even when you don't understand, continue to trust Jesus and you will see it all work out. It might not be painless, but it will work out for the best. And I think this whole situation is a really lovely allegory of prayer. Mary didn't know what Jesus was going to do or when he was going to do it. She just kind of asked for his help and waited, knowing that her requests wouldn't go unanswered. When we as children of God pray, we bring our requests, not necessarily knowing what the will of God is, and certainly not knowing what or when would be best for us, but we just rely on the wisdom and understanding of God to act out for our best. And so please keep praying. Whatever it is that's on your heart, your worries, your loved ones, your illnesses, whatever it is, appreciate the divine magnificence of God. This is the one that we pray to and we rely on. And he answers in a way and in a time that will best serve you and me. So as we are encouraged in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 17, pray without ceasing. Keep praying, keep praying, keep praying. And God will answer in the way that is best and in the time that is best. So Jesus steps in and he gives commands. Bring the ceremonial 
stone water pots and fill them to the brim with water. Now we're told that these pots are ceremonial, and this is significant. This is the kind of fact that could easily have just been missed out, but vitally was included. They were there for religious reasons. Now I didn't like this, there were Jewish laws about how to be clean. Feet would have to be washed on arrival, hands would be thoroughly washed at the start and then before every course of dinner, and if it wasn't, you weren't clean. But it was all religious. It was all legalism. It was all part of a thou shalt not system. Ticking boxes and making it look right. Now, God had given rules about washing in the Old Testament. And back then, in the days before germs and hygiene were really understood, it might have seemed a bit odd. But in fact, God had given really good advice and guidance on how to stay safe. However, this had been completely contorted over the generations by the religious leaders who just added and added and added and eventually turned what was good advice from God into a 60-page document on the rules for washing. But it was all just for show, a way to look good to those around them and earn God's favour. But that's not what Jesus wants for us today. Jesus came to free us from the bondage of a law that we could never fulfil and bring us into a new age of forgiveness and grace. God's favour without the need to tick boxes. And that's what makes this sign of Jesus incredibly significant. Right at the start of his public time, he was showing that the old ways were done away with, and he was here to usher in a new time of grace and God's love without unnecessary box ticking. Our acceptance with God is based entirely on our forgiveness found in the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. That's enough for God to be satisfied with us, And then we obviously try our best to please him in light of all of the amazing things he has done for us and the things he is going to give us. And that Jesus takes these washing pots and fills them with with wine is brilliant. In the Bible, wine is often used to represent joy. See Psalm 104 verse 15, where it talks about wine that gladdens the human heart. Or in Genesis 18, Melchizedek, a character from the Old Testament, who is actually a picture of Jesus Christ, brings bread and wine to help bless Abraham and celebrate with him after an incredible victory. Wine in the Bible is all about joy and celebration. And here, Jesus is going to take religion based on ticking boxes and making sure that everything is perfect, and he's going to turn it into joy. Christian brothers and sisters, if your faith is religious based on those box ticking exercises, making sure that everything is just looks right, then it can be very hard to find joy in that. Jesus wants you to find a peace and a joy that you can only find in him. Things that take away from this are stress, anxiety, worries, rushing around crazily, a determination to keep up with those around about us, a desire for the material, a need to look perfect, and many other things. And the solution to this is to get to know Jesus. Slow down. Take some time to deepen your personal relationship with Jesus by reading his word, spending dedicated time in his company, and get to know him. This will increase your joy. Anyone listening who doesn't know Jesus as a personal saviour, get to know him. And you will find that he offers a peace and a joy that you didn't know anything about, that this world cannot even touch. Please, everyone, When you can, read John 14 again. 
and particularly at the end. And in verse 27, where Jesus is talking to his disciples about what will happen after he dies, and he says these amazing words, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give as the world gives, do not, do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. And our joy is not joy that the world knows or the world tries to offer, it's eternal joy. Knowing that we are accepted by God and welcomed into his family. It is rooted in God and therefore will never be displaced by things of this world unless we let them. So Jesus takes religion and turns it into joy. That's amazing. And so this remarkable miracle happens. The water comes out as wine. I'll put it that way. Chemistry has been done that is beyond our science. This is not trickery. It's not deception. This is molecules becoming entirely different molecules in the ratio that produces a remarkable, if not the best, vintage of wine ever tasted. Because Jesus exceeds expectations. John could have just told us about the miracle, turning water to wine and left it at that. But that's not enough and it shouldn't be. This is amazing wine. So much so that uh, when the, the head waiter tastes it, he's amazed. And then and he takes it to the groom and says, what is this? Why have you done this? Usually people at a wedding, they start off with the good stuff and then when people have had a little bit too much and they're feeling a bit unsteady, they bring out the low quality stuff. But you've done the opposite. You've brought out this magnificent wine at the end. Now the groom obviously doesn't have a clue what's going on. He's just glad that somebody's found some wine. Jesus will always exceed your expectations. In Ephesians 3 we read, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Ask Jesus into your life if you haven't already, and you will find out that Jesus exceeds expectations. Christians, pray big prayers. Pray in faith because Jesus exceeds expectations. He knows what we need and what, we, and what would be bad for us. And thankfully, he, he only wants to give us one of those. But never let our lack of faith limit God or Jesus. He continues to provide, love, bless and forgive in ways that are beyond belief and exceed what we expect and what we deserve. Jesus will forever exceed your expectations. And one of the amazing things about this first miracle of Jesus is that not many people actually knew about it. The disciples, presumably, the servants, and then we don't know of anybody else who did. I wonder how many miracles and interventions happen in our lives on a daily basis that we never see. Life goes on and we never know. I never noticed how God saved us from that disaster, kept us from that accident, prevented us getting into that terrible relationship stepped in to keep us from harm and lead us towards blessing. But if you really do want to see amazing signs and miracles, my advice is to stay close to Jesus like these disciples and serve him like these servants did. 
Keep Jesus close to you all day long. And I promise you are much more likely to realise and see and notice when he does something amazing and remarkable. Pray and wait for God's guidance. Step out in faith and serve people. And I believe that you will be amazed at how God steps in to provide in phenomenal ways. It was those who were close to Jesus and it was those who were serving that saw this miracle. If you want to hear stories about how God has done remarkable miracles for people today, provided funds when there was no way, no possible way, then speak to people who are on the front line of service for God, the missionaries, the people who have started uh, charities in the name of God. And you will hear stories that blow your mind, the impossible being done by God. There are literally hundreds of examples in the Bible of God's miraculous interventions, but research more recent stories as well, and you will be amazed at just how how God steps in even today. And in, in particular, for those who are busy serving the kingdom of God. Now, over the years, alcohol has been a very interesting and unfortunately divisive topic amongst Christians. And we are guilty of turning it into something that it doesn't need to be. Certainly not a reason to fall out or to break communion with other believers. Many Christians have taken a stance to not ever consume alcohol, and they are allowed to do so. Others have taken a stance that scripture does not forbid the consumption of alcohol. And whilst I would agree with this, this should be your conscience and a searching of scriptures to draw a conclusion. Some have said that this wine here would not actually be alcoholic wine, but I struggle to see that. The same Greek word here in the passage is used in other places that are clearly talking about alcoholic wine, and this head waiter in our story clearly seemed to recognise it as wine. But some have also suggested that this passage and the extravagant provision of lots of wine by Jesus is a condoning of excessive drinking or getting drunk, and this stance is certainly wrong. Other very clear passage like Ephesians chapter 5 say, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And passages like this make it absolutely clear that for a Christian to be drunk is not acceptable. And Jesus is not condoning this at all. He provides freely and abundantly, which is his way, but he never condones sin. But at this point, the best thing to do for me is not actually to focus too much on the wine. Focusing on the wine itself is a bit of a danger simply because you might miss out on the real thing, which was the winemaker. So, as we finish today, let's just circle back round. In amongst all of today's lessons from this wonderful passage and story from the Bible, if you forget them all, I will be too offended. But don't miss the man behind the sign. This was just a wedding that was going to end in disaster without Jesus. It is his glory. It is his power. It is his presence there that changes everything. And that's the takeaway message today. He changes everything for the better. These signs just point to him. The great saviour of the world, Jesus Christ. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Do you know his glory? Do you believe? Let me pray. 
Father, I thank you for Jesus, who is the great miracle worker. I thank you for this sign that it points to Jesus. But more than just a miracle of turning water into wine, Father, I thank you for the ultimate miracle is that he has provided salvation for us. This is amazing. I thank you for all who have been blessed by his miracles over the years. But I thank you most for those who have been blessed by salvation. And I pray today that everyone listening here will be utterly convinced of who he is. This is Jesus, the Son of God, who takes takes away the sin of the world. And Father, today I thank you for him. Amen.